Luke chapter 13. Um, can I encourage you to, to have it in front of you? Because I'd like to look at it again. I'd like you to look at it again. Um, maybe it's a summer, maybe I'm just feeling a bit lazy. But I'd like, first of all, to hear from you what struck you as you heard or as you read that passage this morning. What is it about that passage that struck you, that strikes you, that stands out for you? Immediately, Jesus lays his hands on the woman and immediately she is healed. Anything else that you notice? Very much one of the striking things about this story, unlike many others, if you think of people that have brought, they were friends of the man who lured him down through the roof, they were friends, people asked for his daughter to be healed, many instances of that. In this instance, Jesus notices the woman, she doesn't ask to be healed. In the story, Satan, there is a spiritual problem the woman has. Satan is mentioned. It's interesting because this story is unique to Luke. And also in Luke's account, it's the last time we have Jesus speaking in the synagogue. Because that's where we set it up. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. Clearly, relationships with the people of the synagogue were at that time good, or were they? But whatever it was, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And as Julius pointed out to us, he saw this woman has reckoned spondylitis or muscular paralysis. But Jesus notices her, and he calls her forward. Jesus touches her, violating the ritual taboos of his day, puts his hand on her, And immediately, we have this miracle of divine compassion, which strikingly provokes an outburst of religious hypocrisy. The ruler of the synagogue is indignant. Strong little niggling word, isn't it? Indignant. You just got under my skin that. Sorry, I've just got to point this out to you. You know, this is the Sabbath. Sorry, pal, you know. Indignant is what the synagogue leader was. He had his service all sorted, and that wasn't meant to be part of it. That wasn't number 13 in his order of service. Healing? No. Sorry, sorry. I'm in charge of the synagogue. Just calm down a bit. Maybe he felt upstaged by Jesus. Maybe he himself had been involved with a woman for a few years and felt intimidated by not being able to help the woman. Interestingly, Jesus does not, he doesn't speak to Jesus, the synagogue leader. He speaks to the crowd about violating the Sabbath. And Jesus explodes at his sanctimonious reply about his human callousness and his theological hair-splitting. He says, you hypocrites. That rings bells, doesn't it? Because often in the New Testament, Jesus' anger is expressed in that way. It's not with those who've done heinous things. 
It is rather those who put obstacles in the way of others to meet with God. That is what Jesus' anger, his righteous anger, is with. Put obstacles in the way of ordinary folks. That again is what Jesus is angry about. When religion becomes a rarefied thing for a certain group, whether they be well-educated or well-off, Jesus rails against that passionately. And he points out in our story here, you have allowed, according to the Sabbath laws, you allow someone, unlike you, someone who's poor and has animals and looks after animals, to let that, to release the animal so that the animal can feed. How much better to release this woman from her paralysis? Again, the same word is used and he's likening of, of, of releasing. Jesus is saying, maybe when our religious practices, our ritual, are divorced from human health, then something's gone wrong. In what ways, for ourselves, does our behavior, our religious behavior, usurp compassion or justice or mercy in our life? Is there something? Or maybe in our widening the question, taking it broader than that, in our working pattern or our lives our lifestyles have they rough ridden roughshod over compassion justice and mercy Micah 6 8 says has the Lord not shown you a man what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with you our God There's three things I want us to just briefly focus on this morning as we look at this passage. Compassion, courage, and freedom. Jesus' action was spontaneous. This woman, 18 years she'd been suffering with this illness. It's likely in 18 years she had given up. Had she given up hope that she would ever be cured? Unlikely to be cured. In that culture at that time, being a woman meant that it was less likely for people to attend to her and her needs. She was readily overlooked. She lived quietly, never in the limelight herself, doing nothing publicly to draw attention to herself. And Jesus spots her and calls her to the front. As we read Luke, we recognize that compassion is one of the key motifs, key characteristics of this gospel. Compassion, kindness, love in action. How is compassion expressed in the way that we live? Compassion, says Thomas Merton, is the keen awareness of the interdependence of all things. Jesus says elsewhere, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Compassion expresses a high level of emotional maturity. It's love in action. And this leads to our second word, which interestingly is related to compassion, courage. When I was on sabbatical last year, one of the highlights for me was when I went to synagogue in Jerusalem it's not always possible to visit a synagogue um, when you're a Gentile, when you're a non-Jew. 
And it was a thrill for me to be invited, along with a couple of others, to be in the synagogue when worship was happening. And it was fascinating to watch the singing, the storytelling, the participation. And particularly with the singing and the stories, the two were very closely linked. The stories were reminding them of who they were, of who, who they wanted to be. Um, and different people at different times led the singing. And uh, I was impressed by the men's singing at, in, in that place. What I also noted, however, was it was a progressive, and we were presented, we were told that, it was seen as a progressive synagogue. There still was a clear division between the men on one side, like down here, and there's even a, a wooden frame that separated the men from the woman. Now, the person leading was on the men's side and standing up so he could be seen by both. But there was a trellis, if you like, down the middle of this. When you first came in, you almost thought you could, they could do two separate activities. But still these days in a progressive sense, I was quite taken aback. I didn't quite know what to expect, mind you. But there were these two different parts to it. This was this one in, in Jerusalem. And what was interesting for me to think was that that woman in our story must have had to come out of the woman's side to get to where Jesus was. Whoa, that's a big step. That was a risky thing to do. It took courage for her to do that. Think of the occasions when you don't feel your most boldest and you're a group of 300 people, whether it be at school or at college or with a busload of people and suddenly your name's called and you're thinking, oh, I've got to step forward at this point. I don't really want to do that. Jesus looks at her and says, would you come out? She'd been spent her last 18 years saying, I don't exist. I don't matter. Not me. How tempting it was for her to say, I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to sit here. I, I can't bear the limelight. I don't, I don't do limelight. I'm me. And the way I am with my fallibilities is the way I am. I've known people who in their lives have clung on to experiences of particular suffering and have allowed that to be something that has got in the way of their freedom, in the way of their health. And that's become part of them. It's, it's something through which they see life. There's a degree of self-pity in that. Everything is seen through this way. Eighteen years this woman had been suffering and Jesus invites her and says, I, do you want to get better? That's the other interesting thing when you read this. How many times did Jesus perform a healing miracle? He asked that, what seems to us superfluous question, do you want to get better? But in the light of 18 years of holding on to this illness and becoming part of her, he looks her and he looks the people in the face and says, do you want to change? Do you want a chapter where you're free of this? Where your social category and society will change? Are you willing to be healed in the full sense of that word? Bent over. That's what the woman was. Bent over is what we read. It makes me think of um, when I was in the Kerio Valley, the number, I've probably said this before, but women in the Kerio Valley carrying on their backs firewood that would stick... Um, way out here, and you'd see the firewood walking towards you before you'd see the woman. But the woman has a spiritual problem. 
or an affliction. Proverbs 18.14 says, The human spirit can endure a sick body, but who can bear it if the spirit is crushed? Bent over. wonder what image in our society today that, you, that, that makes you think of, as well as somebody with a, an obvious medical de- deformity or problem. Made me think of somebody with carrying a lot on their shoulders. They're, they're feeling so weighed down by life, they're bent over. The stresses, the strains, the pressures of things mean that they are far from being free. In fact, they feel heavily laden and they're bent over. Sometimes we can get like that with our computers, can't we? We're bent over it. You get up and you stretch. Oh, goodness, you stretch. And What's that saying about our health and our well-being? One of the questions I had about this passage, why heal that woman? Why? Jesus, Jesus saw that woman and in his compassion he healed her. Or was there more to it than that? Because I think there was. Because in Luke chapter 6, verse 6, just let me tell you that, the Pharisees are already watching to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. Because in Luke chapter 6, he already heals on the Sabbath. So by the time we get to chapter 13, Jesus is, is he simply being provocative here? I don't know, is it a mix of the, I think Jesus knew what he was doing when he saw this woman who clearly needed healing. It was compassionate. But there's courage on Jesus' behalf to question at the same time by his action the limitations of the theology of the synagogue. Luke is bringing together some harsh words around this chapter 12 and 13 for people who had received Jesus' good news. How often does it take courage to be compassionate? In our lives, how often does it take courage to stop from our routine? I know I'm going to be late for that person. But I've seen, I've noticed the situation. And I've seen with God's eyes, maybe we wouldn't say that, I've just noticed. Step aside. Divert your route. Take the time. See, compassion is not just about feeling sorry. It's about engaging our will in doing something. It's love in action. How often you'd wanted, you felt moved by that situation you've, you've read about, you've experienced, but you haven't quite got around to writing that letter to the MP. Compassion is only when we act. It's not just a feeling. It's when we engage our will with something that's come to our, that we've noticed. This week we've been, um, Battle of Britain memories have been brought back to us and we have memories very much of Churchill's statement at that time how about the many being, being grateful for the, for the self-giving of the few. But Churchill also said this, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. If we're living a compassionate lifestyle, it may well lead us into into struggle, into conflict with those who hold power. Because compassion is adjusting the power balance. Suddenly this woman's life is going to be changed. People will be treating her differently. She would be empowered. What about us? And Jesus' compassion. Jesus, who 
we as Christians don't just look to his life for good moral examples, but we thank God that he has opened us for us the way to the Father. Jesus' compassion, he reached out a hand. He did more than that, he gave his life that we might know what life is and life everlasting. Courage is very much at the part, very much part of what it means to live a compassionate life. Finally, freedom. I can't begin to imagine the feeling after 18 years of being unwell, and she straightens up and she praises God. It just spontaneously happens. Thank God for the release. This is wonderful. The joy of being able to straighten up and to see the world from a different place. I remember the first time I got glasses. This is maybe an, an, a story that goes the other way, but the first time I got glasses, um, it seemed a bit like a, putting glasses on is maybe a bit of a, a handicap. But again, you see the world. Wow, this is fantastic. I hadn't seen it from this place before. Ah, oh, brilliant. Look at how vi- vivid the colors are. It's so green, that grass. Wonderful. Freedom. Freedom in Christian terms means knowing that God will love us. That's the beauty of God's grace that we've sung of. God will love us whatever we do or don't do. God will love us even when we don't love ourselves. God will love us for who we are. God will love us because God loves us, because God loves us. Freedom in Christian terms means knows that God loves me whatever I do, that that I am living as God intends, that God's Spirit is in me. Freedom is... How would you finish the sentence for you? Christian freedom is... You broke down the barriers when you crept in beside us. For in Jesus, the smiling Jesus, the storytelling Jesus, the controversial Jesus, the annoying Jesus, the loving and forgiving Jesus, your hands touched all. Showing how in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, neither male nor female, you made each one of us in your image And for this we praise you. You opened our eyes to see that the hands of the rich are empty and the hearts of the poor are full. You dared to take the widow's might, the young boy's loaves, the child at the breast, and in these simple things point out the path of the kingdom. You said, follow me, for on your own you'll never discover that there is neither, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, you made each one of us in your image. And for this, we praise your name. You gave us hands to hold, white hands, brown hands, black hands, the clasping hands of lovers, the reluctant hands of those who don't believe they're worth holding. And when we wanted to shake our fist, you still wanted to shake our hand. Because in Christ... There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female. You made each one of us in your image. 
And for this, we praise your name. Here in the company of folks that we know, and others not so well, and the self from whom we turn, we ask to love as Jesus loves. So that we might not grasp that love, but share it. Because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female. You made each one of us in your image. And for this, we praise your name.